Join us February 6th through 10th for the latest edition of Film Comment Selects, our annual film series. The Cinematic Showcase returns with a selection of titles curated by the magazine's editors, offering bold visions, new films, and rediscovered titles. For the full lineup, visit the Film Society of Lincoln Center's website. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Nicholas Rapold, the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. Today, we raise our voices in praise of the concert film. We begin with Amazing Grace, the long-awaited 1972 movie featuring Aretha Franklin, which was finally released last month. In the new January-February issue of Film Comment, Andrew Chan marvels at Franklin's ability to make us imagine what it's like to produce a whole universe of sound within one's own body. After Amazing Grace, in the second half of the show, we chat about three other concert films that we love. Joining me for this discussion were Andrew Chan, who is the web editor at the Criterion Collection, and Sheila O'Malley, a frequent film comic contributor. Let's go to the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. This week, this is one of the podcasts where we kind of jump off one of the features in our new issue, uh, the January-February issue, uh, and that is a wonderful feature on Amazing Grace, the long-awaited, <laughs> the sorely-awaited Aretha Franklin concert film, uh, which I won't say much more about because I have two expert commentators <laughs> to, to say more eloquent than I could. Uh, one of them is the author of that feature. Hi, everyone. This is Andrew Chan. Um, I wrote the feature on Amazing Grace. And I'm Sheila O'Malley, and I'm happy to be here <laughs> to participate. <laughs> uh, Sheila is, uh, is also a regular contributor to, to Film Comment uh, and to RogerEbert.com. And yeah, what we're going to do is we're going to basically uh, rejoice <laughs> in this film, I think, right? Um, and then in the second half of the podcast, we're going to talk about um, other concert films. We've each come prepared with another concert film to talk about. Um, but Amazing Grace, where to begin? I mean, Andrew, can you kind of give us the background to the film? Why is this such a cherished thing? Well, I first heard that there was a film of this concert back when I first bought the CD, which is probably like 15 years ago. Rhino Records released a Complete Recordings, which is, I think, two hours long, which is an hour longer than the actual original LP that they released in 1972. And it has a tortured backstory. Sidney Pollack was hired to film this event, which was Aretha's return to the church. She, she st started out um, under her father, C.L. Franklin, who was a reverend um, singing gospel music before she crossed over into pop music. And um, this was really her first time recording um, an album length gospel concert. So um, Sidney Pollack was hired to create a feature film out of it. And what ended up happening was he didn't use a clapperboard because he'd never recorded live music before. And so lo and behold, it was impossible to sync the sound in the image. And they just went and released the LP on its own, which ended up becoming one of the best-selling gospel albums of all time. And... So in the 1990s, um, an A&R man at Atlantic Records um, approached Jerry Wexler, who was Aretha Franklin's mentor, and asked um, about the footage of the film. 
um, to see whether he could cobble it together and actually get it to be released. And so finally he restored it and edited it. And Aretha ended up being the person to throw a wrench into the process and said that she didn't want it to actually be released in theaters. And this was the case up until her death last year. That's like the mystery part for me. Is, does anyone really know why, why she wanted to, to hold it back? I kind of, I kind of suspect we're going to get to an answer for that as we talk about it, but I don't know. There was speculation that it was like revenge for how poorly... It, how terribly it was botched early mm-hmm. on and just also issues with money. I think she had been asking for a high price and I'm sure that was in negotiations. I mean, I don't know any of this for sure, but I've just heard many things over the years yeah. um, as people have speculated and been dying to see this film. But yeah. there was a moment when it was supposed to show, I think at Telluride in 2000 right. and... 15 maybe? Yeah, that sounds right. 2015. Um, and that was blocked by her. She sued. So, yeah, up until her death, she didn't really want it to be seen. And then um, finally her family, after she passed, gave permission to Alan Elliott to continue pursuing um, the release. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I remember in your piece, you mentioned something about there being a almost like a supernatural <laughs> effect to it that, you know, this sense of release after her death. Well, know. especially as someone who's been listening to the album and Aretha Franklin since probably since I was 12 years old, I remember I got my first Aretha Franklin record mm-hmm. and have been a fan ever since and particularly a fan of this album. And to see finally the images the moving images going along with the sounds. I mean, there were so many details that you don't pick up on when you're just listening listening to the album. Mm. The fact that she's sitting at a piano at certain songs, the fact that Clara Ward, one of her great mentors when she was a kid, um, is there in the audience sort of cheering her on. The fact mm. that her father is there. Um, all these um, elements that sort of reveal more of a story of a community coming around mm. this genius uh, that aren't really captured just in the album itself yeah. really come into focus in the film. What's interesting also is the kind of simultaneity of the event for all of us, because we kind of all just saw this movie in the past couple of months. Right. Yeah. Well, similar to you, I mean, this was an album that I knew by heart you know it was just it's legendary and you do it's one of those concert film recordings as opposed to visual where you feel like you're in the room you know I would put this I have a couple the Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison you feel like you're in that prison and then Jerry Lee Lewis at the Star Club which feels like the audience is gonna tear down the roof it sounds like a political rally they're like Jerry you know, um, so there's a certain kind of sound, you know, you can feel the church, you know, that she wanted to record this in a church and not a studio. You can, the choir, which I'm not going to, I'm not remembering their name. The Southern California Community Choir, I think. Just their sound um, is, you just get goosebumps, but I have just imagined what they looked like. I have, I can feel the crowd. So seeing it, Dan Callahan wrote a piece about it too. Basically like, well, now that I've seen the film, it's changed my relationship to the, cause now I can see her eye makeup and the sweat and her outfit. A lot of sweat. Coming down the, you know, it'd be, uh, you know, the people collapsing 
into sobs and fainting and, uh, you know. Handkerchiefs uh, flying in uh, the it's air. just so, <laughs> so to be able to see it with an album that I already know so well, it would be like seeing Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison, like actually getting footage of it, you know. Anyway, it's, um, it was a thrill. I mean, it was kind of like, oh my God. Also with the Orson Welles this year, it felt like yeah. two you know, like legendary, if you're paying attention, you know, if, the, if you love Orson Welles, if you love Aretha, then you have wanted to see these things for, you know, I mean, forever. So, um, I mean, my experience watching, I remember there was a moment and I'm not remembering what song I was trying to remember which song it was, but I literally felt like I, I stopped breathing. <laughs> I was like, it was so intense and um, it went even further. I mean, it, it was And that's like, how she designs the songs. Yeah, it, you know? it really um, shows you how it's, how it's done. And you can see why people faint. I mean, I literally wasn't breathing. I'm sitting in my living room watching it going like, <laughs> you know, it's going, it's, it's so, uh, anyway, it was a total gift. And that choir just, you know, and they're sitting. I was fascinated by that. I just yeah. always, assume, you know, they're sitting in those rows and in the zone with her. Everyone is just there to support her. It's yeah. thrilling to to finally see it. I think for me what made it so emotional not just the build up and the anticipation over the decade that I knew that this film existed, but the fact that she had passed, I think it was in the fall of last year. And um, when she passed, I just sort of, being a fan, was scouring YouTube for as much footage as I could find. And there really wasn't that much. I mean, there is, there's footage of her on, you know, the Merv Griffin show. Or, and there's a lot of stuff from later years, like from the 80s onward. But her golden years from the 60s to the 70s, there's, you know, maybe a dozen really good clips. But it's not... Uh, an embarrassment of riches on YouTube. And so I think I was just really starved because for um, moving images of her. And that's sort of what I get into in the piece is this sort of intersection of like fan grief and mourning with this desire for um, coupling the image with the sound. Um, because particularly with her, she's one of these musical figures who is so mythical and mystical, it's very easy to talk about her in um, spiritual terms, even if she had not ever sung gospel. Just the the degree of her gift is such that you feel faint when you're listening. If you're a true fan, you just get weak at the knees. And I feel that way listening to any of her recordings, even after I've you know listened to them for 15 years now and know them backwards and forwards. And so the moving image becomes this kind of corroboration that, wow, this magical, mystical sound actually was issuing from a throat, you know? A human. <laughs> a, human a human being. Yeah. And there's a palpability to um, this particular film and the way he... Um, Sidney Pollack gets the close-ups of her, the way you see the sweat. And for me, it was a revelation in terms of realizing or seeing singing as something that should be watched. You know, um, the human voice is not an instrument that you can touch. It's not something that you can see. You can't see someone 
plucking strings or, you know, tapping away at piano keys. It's inside a body. And so to see this greatest of voices um, and how it projects out of this particular person's mouth, this particular person's throat, what her eyes are doing, how does she raise her neck when she is hitting those high notes, um, is spellbinding. Every single moment of that, I, I was just like completely glued. No, and especially knowing those moments by heart, knowing every inflection by heart, and to pair it with bodily movements mm. um, yeah. was very thrilling. Yeah, you 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 mentioned uh, her eyes. That was something that really struck me when I was watching it. When she closes her eyes, and yeah. I, 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 you also touch upon that in a in in piece a bit. Um, you know, it's it's strange to have such a very public and outward, you know, art as, as singing, but you can tell how much there's also this internal, you know, power and presence that she's drawing on as well. It's a mental intellectual activity, which you really realize as you see her sort of going through the motions and you maybe I, I, I'm not one of those people who thinks Amazing Grace is like the greatest thing that she ever did. I know that Mm. there's a lot of positioning around that. I really adore the Atlantic records hits uh, that she she did i think I, I think i don't buy into the narrative that this is a pure aretha because right. she was so eclectic in terms of genre in terms of style and in terms of the sound of her voice over over the course of 50 years but i do see just how wildly free this setting made her and really when you get to see her in improvisatory mode as the choir is backing her, as she's given all this freedom to sort of riff over a musical backdrop, you really see the wheels in motion in her brain. You know, mm. you can see the the hesitation, you can see um, her thinking about how she's going to execute everything that she's doing sonically. Yeah. I'm no expert on, on, on a lot of the songs uh, that, that are in this, but I am very conscious that these are songs that are sung millions of times a day, a week, a year. So that's another aspect that feels so special is, is, is you know, like you're saying, her trying to, f- how am I finding this song? How do I find myself in it? Um, and then also something about the song that's beyond everyone, you know? Uh, and I mean, it's interesting to think of this as, one of, as a musical performance that's also a spiritual performance, which is definitely not something you automatically and get. And a collective, too, because exactly. the, you know, the communal feeling of that kind of church service is, I mean, the point in a lot of ways. And I mean, I'm Catholic, so we don't do that. So am I. Okay. You know, <laughs> grew up Catholic. Not. Um, so, uh, which is, uh, you know, I find much that is beautiful in the Catholic service too, but you, when you go, you're like, wow, people are like clapping and cheering and, you know, I mean, you know, it's kind of, cliched to say, oh, she's coming back to her roots where, um, you know, the similar thing with Sam Cooke, which she Mm -hmm. um, started. I mean, I think she toured with him. She was like a teenager. Yeah. And she was in love with him. She was totally in love with him. And she was like, he reads books. He reads books. I'm going to start reading books. I read the Sam Phillips biography (laughs) of Sam Cooke and there's great Aretha interviews in there. Amazing. Um, She really looked up to him. You know, you can't get any more successful in the gospel circuit than Sam Cooke was. You know, they were superstars. People were fainting. There were, you know, people were lining down the block, but in terms of sales, and he was a very practical man. So he was like, 
I'm going, I'm going over there. And it was so controversial and, you know, so people were devastated by it and it was very, you know, but anyway, so he's And we of, forget that what a big deal it was for I mean, someone the, from the gospel world to cross over the into Sam the Sam Phillips um, biography, I highly recommend because it's all those people and like forgotten people like Winona Carr, who I absolutely love, um, who kind of died in obscurity, but she did a similar thing. She, you know, she has very rough gospel, really rough voice you know and then did a pop album anyway but when you hear sam cook or you hear aretha's pop i mean it's so like the style now that you have to go back and go well Mm -hmm. that was what was amazing about it was that they were bringing that sound into the pop world it changed the world it's it literally changed the world and we live in the aftermath of that of the bringing gospel into pop and you need the voices for it. And these people obviously had the voices. And now we have people who don't come from a gospel background doing all the trills. I'm which, exactly. nothing against it, but it it's it's imitating the imitators. Yeah. You know, that's well, the level of influence that this has had. I mean, um, that documentary, Twenty Feet from Stardom, stardom. Oh. those are all church girls. Every single one of them. And if you want that, you know, Mary Clayton, if you want rock and roll to bring you to somewhere else, you're going to go with those women, you know? It's interesting what you say about, you know, the um, widespread popularity of a certain style of music, the trills, the melisma and everything, and how it's been kind of completely deracialized when really it was rooted in the black church. Um, And now you hear like, Demi I mean, Lovato or and any Broadway of your, stars have to do Bro- it now. Exactly. And now like the straight belt is like out. You got to be able to do those, those modulations. Yeah. yeah. And I think one of the amazing things about amazing grace is that it is one of the rare concert films where you really get to see a black artist in front of a black audience. Um, and when you were mentioning Sam Cooke, I'm thinking, why is there not a concert film of him? Why yes. is there no concert film of Donny Hathaway? none of Ray Charles, like these amazing, incredible artists. What we have in the concert film canon that emerged in the 60s and 70s is primarily white rock artists with a few soul artists sprinkled in, but always with a white audience. Mm. So Monterey Pop, you have your Otis Redding and you have your Jimi Hendrix, but that's the white, predominantly white hippie crowd that's being appealed to. Same thing with Woodstock and on down the line. Um, so there are very few examples of a great genius black artist in their prime performing primarily for a black audience. So I think that's another thing that really makes this precious. And so when you see her doing all of these trills, doing these amazing, all of the extraordinary technical ability that she's unleashing and seeing it connected to her community you realize really how far those techniques have been taken out of their original context. Well, and it's almost like she's serving the community. She Mm -hmm. is the vessel through which this catharsis can take place where everyone um, needs to let loose. Everyone, we all walk around. I mean, that's what's so fascinating about these singers who came from that that world. I mean, you listen to Sam Cooke's soul stir stuff and it starts kind of, and then by the end it is 
oh my god like they had that that's one of the things about the performances in amazing grace that i love which at her level there's she doesn't need to think about her technique she doesn't need to think about she is this is she's got this and so she starts the song at a certain place she knows where it's going to go and she's going to get bigger as it that's why I stopped breathing because yeah. you can see it happen. And it's like she goes, she does, you're better at the melisma stuff, but you know, she does a, she does something yeah. and then digs deeper yep. and goes higher. Yeah. You think you're at the, that's what's so incredible yeah. and precious about seeing this. I mean, there's this great anecdote about Sarah Vaughn hearing one of her early um, Skylark, I think, and saying, well, I'm never doing that song again. I love that anecdote. <laughs> um, I think it was Etta James. Etta James who, tells the story. Can, oh, I'm wow. going to swear, but she was like, hey, did you hear that bitch's Skylark? And Sarah Vaughn's like, I'm never doing it again. <laughs> you know, I'm retiring crazy. it. You yeah. know, And it was like... <laughs> She gospelified yeah. Skylark. <laughs> it's one it's, of the most incredible it, recordings it, it, it ever. It is incredible because wow. she g- jumps that octave and um, does it as though it's inevitable. That's the other thing that I that I find mm. that is so thrilling about um, these performers. There's a clip of um, Little Richard, actually, too, who a live clip of him uh, singing. I think it's a whole lot of shaking going on. And it's like... 18 minutes long and he works the crowd like a conductor. And by the end he is out of his mind and everyone else is, but he starts, you know, super, super chill, but he knows where he's going and he needs them to come with him. I mean, this is one of the things that I, um, I'm going to sound very get off my lawn, but this is the kind (laughs) of performing that, you know, it's almost like now you you, you, they, they want to remove a lot of risk, you know? Yeah. So you're going to have your dancers, you're going to have the, this, the, that, you're going to have the lights, you're going to be. And so what happens, I'm not saying that people aren't reaching their audiences and that audiences don't have profound um, connections to Christina Aguilera. And, you know, I think these are very sort of important figures for, but, you know, strip it down to a piano and a chorus behind you and let's see, let's see how, how you do yeah. that immediate connection, which is what you see in that, which is why Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts snuck in, in the back yeah. because you want to see how it's done. Exactly. Um, you know, and it's, yeah. it's interesting to see amazing grace now, decades later when sort of, there have been so many concert films that have documented the big um, stadium concert, the hyper-produced blockbuster tour, right? Like Madonna, Blonde Ambition. Even like, it doesn't even have to be a feature film. Like Beyonce at Coachella, love Beyonce, but it's a completely different, these are incredible performers, Mm. but um, there is a level of production where there's not a ton of spontaneity and not a ton of surprise. Um, on, on the part of the performer, um, there are moments in Amazing Grace where you feel like even Aretha, even though she knows where she's going the whole time, she's surprised herself, mm-hmm. you know, and she, there's not a lot of inwardness in a lot of that kind of blockbuster stadium mm-hmm. 
performing. It can't be because it's um, choreographed yeah. with the lights and the this and the, you know, I mean, which I've been to many of those concerts. I saw Eminem and Rihanna and yeah. it was, I lost my mind. It was great, like so fun. It's a great experience. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it was seeing them as, you know, was uh, super fun. And, um, and, you know, you have these like front, front people, you know, the, the lead singers who have to reach the cheap seats in the stadiums and the really great ones can do that. Yeah. You know, but you know, it'll just be interesting to see when you strip everything away, who's going to be, who can, who can, who can do a set like that? Mm -hmm. Who can actually, um, because the, that's the other thing is you just have to be present and you have to be present to your audience. You can't hide, you know? I mean, I think of, Nirvana's MTV Unplugged. I yeah. mean, that's really, you know, that it's haunting. It's haunting because he's really confronted by how raw it is. And it's, you know, and Aretha, that's her realm. Yeah. yeah. That's her realm. Yeah. When I was thinking about concert films in preparation for this, I was thinking about the fact that really what's powerful about them is that they're really a kind of non-narrative cinema that's sort of embedded within oftentimes popular mainstream cinema. And so Amazing Grace, there's no story. You're watching something happen that you have probably already heard many times on record. Um, So there's no narrative there. And so the narrative is in gesture. The narrative is in what's going on around this performance. And the narrative is actually in the songs. Many of them were written in the 30s and the 40s and were classic gospel um, tunes by that time. But there's the the political context of what's happening in the country at the time. And the fact that she brings in Marvin Gaye's Holy Holy from a really political album, What's Going On, the fact that every um, every appeal to Jesus really feels like an appeal to political solidarity um, brings another layer to something that actually by itself isn't much of a story in the sense of how we think of narrative cinema. Mm, yeah. No, it's a really interesting way to to think about it, you know, that it's as think of it as a piece of a non-narrative cinema, and I mean, and the setting is is almost like I mean, of course, it's it's a church setting, so it's dramatic in that sense. But it, there's also something pretty like humble and, and modest about it. That this is not a mega church. It's not it's a, a me- right. really small church. Yeah, no special lights. It's yeah. um, you know, just regular. It's yeah. I mean, and uh, echo. Yeah. yeah. Wooden pews. And it's not like she's in like dramatic, like superstar close up all the time with a light on her, you know. Sometimes she's sort of partially obscured behind a piano or a pul- or the pulpit, you know. And you always have the the the, the seated background singers, which I, really it really is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean And yeah. she's seated at one point. <laughs> well, she's uh, seated, she's seated yeah. at the piano, but then yeah. one point she's at, at at the very last song, um, Never Grow Old, she's at the piano and then she goes off to the side to sit and then all of a sudden she's singing again she's not even miked and you hear like the echo of her voice that really just that's not on the album and i kind of (laughs) fell out of my chair when i saw that um well one thing that i wanted to get to in regards to this film is i got into an argument with someone um a friend who felt it did a disservice to her because he found it really poorly edited poorly shot and i didn't know what to say to that and 
I didn't notice it. I mean, I don't think it's a masterpiece of editing in the way that Gimme Shelter is or Monterey Pop, but sort of my counter argument to him was, I could have just taken the raw footage and watched it from beginning to end, and I would have been happy. I would have been in heaven. And so to me, it's a miracle that this exists. Can I say something slightly mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if that is what you're focusing on, um, you don't deserve good movies. I mean, <laughs> seriously, if you're concerned about the editing and you're not watching Aretha, then what are we doing here? What I'm sorry. Doing? What are we doing? What are we paying attention to? Sorry. I'm sorry, Amen. friend. I don't know who you are. but Amen, Sheila. I mean, uh, the thing... Yeah, show yeah. it to me on an iPhone I'm off like, of your television and I'm exactly. going to be into it. I don't need an auteurist, hyper-crafted art object out of this also footage. something about the rawness of it where <laughs> Sidney Pollack is in some of the footage he seems quite a little bit like behind yeah. uh, you know always um yeah. adds to the feeling that you're there that you're catching your um which mm -hmm. is incredible because it does seem like oh she just kind of showed up in her fabulous outfits you know two different <laughs> outfits but it looks like oh it looks spontaneous, even though this is a highly planned, highly rehearsed, high stakes for, for her. Yes. You know, I mean, every t single time she performs, it's high stakes. That's why she's Aretha Franklin. It's life or death. Yeah. You know, it's like this is the last time that I will be she singing. Sings like you know, she's yeah, the last it's time. The last time. Yeah. It's, that's, <laughs> that's what, what separates. Yeah. People ask, why is she the greatest singer? And I often think about this because I've held her to be the greatest singer ever since I heard her. But there are singers who have, believe it or not, wider range. There are singers who can do even more intricate riffs than she can. There are singers with more, what you might say, classically beautiful voices, like a Sarah Vaughan has a very naturally operatic, beautiful, luscious tone. Um, I... Yeah, I'm just going to throw that question out there because mm. I I still find it fascinating. I don't have the answer, but it is just something about the way she plays the audience and the drama that she brings to everything she does. She's a singer, for me, she's a singer of knowledge. She, everything that comes out of her mouth, you just believe it right away and it feels like it's coming from a deeper well of knowledge. Wisdom. And that's the only way that I can describe it. Wisdom. Yeah, like that. wisdom. Yeah, also just um, everyone's not created equal in that people have more to, some people have more to give. Yes. And she has more to give. And <laughs> than almost any of us. And then, yeah. And... Um, there are plenty of people who have a ton to give and sit in their house going, I have so much to give. I'm so, so sorry. She is like, I'm giving it. And she's yes. a teenager and she's like, well, the generosity. I'm it. There is no, you know, this is what she was born to do, but she also um, has uh, opened up her vessel enough to be able to go, okay, well, actually, I thought that that was the, I thought that that was the climax but I got more. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, that's what's so thrilling about her. Um, and, uh, you know, untouchable, really, mm -hmm. in that respect. Yeah. All right. We, yeah. 
We could clearly go on. There is, I think we, we just need to have another, another Aretha uh, podcast after this. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to take a little break now. Uh, and then when we come back, we'll be talking about some other uh, concert films. Um, so stick around. The Film Society of Lincoln Center announces the 19th edition of Film Comment Magazine's annual festival, Film Comment Selects. The cinematic showcase returns on February 6th with a selection of titles curated by the magazine's editors, offering bold visions, new films, and rediscovered titles. The festival opens with the New York premiere of Academy Award-winning director Laszlo Nemish's Sunset and features a spotlight screening of Steven Soderbergh's High Flying Bird. Join us February 6th through 10th for these and other special premieres at Film Comment Selects. For more information and a full lineup, visit the Film Society of Lincoln Center's website. And we're back to talk about uh, more concert films. Uh, we've each picked one. Um, Sheila, what was, which one did you pick? I picked The Tammy Show, um, which is similar in some ways to the Aretha because it was really not available to be seen for licensing reasons. There were bootlegs uh, out, but the Beach Boys, who were, anyway, um, were not on it, you know. Finally, it's out on DVD. The whole thing's on YouTube. You can see the whole thing. And, uh, you know, it's as good as everybody says it was. And anyone who was participating in this concert, um, if they've published a memoir, they've talked about it, (laughs) because it was that kind of concert. So it was uh, 1964 and Steve Binder, who is just just a fascinating guy, I believe he's still alive because it was just the 50th anniversary of Elvis's 1968 comeback special, which he also, and he was interviewed about it. So he was this young kind of guy, very sort of hip and bold and radical. When you see sort of his track record, he really saw ahead. And he partnered with a guy named Bill Sargent to really bring out, put together this concert for teenagers in Santa Monica. That was the, and Tammy, I think is like Teenage Awards Music International or something. And it's not an awards (laughs) show, which is also was so funny. Like it was a completely meaningless, (laughs) meaningless. Um, And they, um, so they put together a bill of, um, the idea was to get American rock stars and British rock stars. So the Beatles had, I think were had played the Ed Sullivan show in February of that. So the British invasion is beginning. It's really starting. So the idea was, well, let's get some, you know, British people over here and then let's have the American rock stars do. And it's going to be super fun. And the teenagers will hand out free tickets and, and that all occurred. But what really ended up happening was that it becomes this, battle of the bands between the sort of Americans and the British and who's inspired by who. And sometimes they're on the stage at the same time. So, so let's get to brass tacks. So it opens with Chuck Berry and there's platforms all over the stage. It was interesting. Uh, the film that we're going to talk about with you is there is a Tammy show element yeah, to the um, production design, but um And, you know, so they've got the go-go dancers. Terry Garr is one of them. Tony Basil is one of them. Um, And 
Chuck Berry comes on surrounded by go-go dancers. I mean, there's an element of it's kind of an absurd. Um, they basically just put together the show and then had the rock stars come on in front yeah. of them. They, you know, so, so they had no idea what was going on behind them. And he plays Sweet Little Sixteen, I think, and uh, Mabel. And he's um, Chuck Berry. What are you going to say? Yeah. I mean, you know, the editing wasn't that great, but um, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you know, he's a king. He's just, and he's, he's like, he's not even breaking a sweat. He's just playing. He's having yeah. a great time. The audience is going crazy. And then they cut to Jerry and the pacemakers across the stage who also sing Maybelline. They are singing Chuck Berry's song across the stage from Chuck Berry. Mm. Whose bright idea was that? So Jerry and the Pacemakers are sweet little mop top guys. They were very successful. And through the course, I don't want to overplay this, but they are drenched in sweat. It's almost like this seemed really cool. Like I'm going to share a stage with my idol. But And then they cut back to Chuck Berry. That's how it opens. And it was filmed live um, and was – there's. It's, you know, with almost, you know, very little rehearsal. So there is a feeling too, like, oh, we got to get the, you know, there's a little bit of a caught feeling to it. Like, oh, there, let's get the go-go dancers coming on down. And uh, Chuck Berry is like <laughs> low in the frame. And um, there's some awkwardness, which makes it, you feel what the British invasion was. You feel um, there's nothing wrong with Jerry and the pacemakers, but when you put him them next to uh, Chuck Berry, I mean, there's no contest and Chuck Berry knew there was no contest. I mean, what, you know. So other um, acts on the bill, it's just in- extraordinary. Marvin Gaye. Um, Amazing. Blossoms is inc- just his, um, you know, everyone sings about three or four songs. The Supremes. Leslie Gore, who had, I think, the number one song, It's My Party. I, th- I believe it was that year. She was the biggest star at the time. Wow. And she wow. sings six songs, and which is fast. And she kills them. It's um, You Don't Own Me, yeah, which great is a singer. feminist anthem. I've forgotten know? what a great singer she um, is. She's a great singer. Um, so in the middle of all of this other kind of melodrama of, you know, the Beach Boys who are playing you know, who ended up having to sort of change. They stole, you know, Chuck Berry's um, song. That Surf in the USA was the same. They play Surf in the USA yeah. um, in the same show. You know, the Beach Boys kill, you know. But the real, the thing that you probably have heard about, if you haven't seen it and you must see it, is the um, Stones, the Rolling Stones, were put on the last on the bill. And James Brown was second to last. Um, James Brown. It's completely brutal. brutal, But the way it plays out, it's a win-win for everybody. But uh, Keith Richards said, and his, like I said, every single memoir of anyone who was there, um, they've all written about it. Um, Keith Richards said it was the biggest mistake in their career to even go on that show because of course, and to follow James Brown, it's almost like your worst. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Your worst His performance is unbelievable. And James Brown was pissed. Like nobody follows me. Are you like, he has, he literally destroys rooms. He, <laughs> nothing is left, you know? And so he, um, he gave this interview uh, and he <laughs> said, he was so pissed, and he said, I danced so hard that night, my manager cried, wow. which is just hilarious. 
But then Steve Binder <laughs> said, the director said that many, five or six years later, they ran into each other somewhere and James Brown came over and embraced him and said, you captured my act for posterity. Because again, like you were saying this, these, um, legendary James Brown's shows were legendary. Like the cape is coming over and he throws it down. I mean, all of these things that you've heard about, um, there it is in the, the Tammy show and he, uh, destroys the room. I mean, just uh, please, please me is one of the, the way I wrote about it on my site. And it was like, okay, you just need to know if you want to be a performer, just know that a bar has been set. Mm. Um, by James Brown in that performance. Yeah. And you should want to at least attempt, like don't think you can just phone it in because the evidence is, I, I mean, I can't even, I won't even describe it. The falling to the knees, Steve Binder keeps falling to his knees. Um, his, the choreography around him, um, it's almost like he's overwhelmed by his own song. And it, it's shtick. I mean, he did it every show. Totally. Like the cape. the cape and I'm staggering away from the mic and I'm weeping. But then, no, I'm not done. And he, like, throws off the cape and falls to his knees. And the audience, by the end of it, the audience is fainting. I mean, you can see cops. You know, you can literally see cops coming down because <laughs> girls are losing their minds. And, um, <laughs> and he does three encores. It, it's unique in the whole thing. And by the final encore, he just sits down. He's like, I can't. I'm so overwhelmed by myself. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's such a rock star. It's like, see, this is what I love. And, this, and that performance has resonances with Amazing Grace, this self-knowledge of the genius performer, like throughout Amazing Grace and in that James Brown, just the knowledge that you are the greatest <laughs> and have, have so much to give, yeah. like is so yeah. compelling. I mean, he goes like, I am, he's literally staggering like a, a wounded king away from the microphone, <laughs> surrounded by his, you know, backup singers all like fanning him. This is like shtick. They've done it a bazillion times. And it is though it's the first time everyone's drenched in sweat. And he's like, you know, literally like he's in a wind tunnel. Um, and then he comes back and he just starts screaming. It's like, so, I mean, you're laughing and, you know, it makes me cry. Um, and Keith Richards describing, you know, this is their idol. They're sitting backstage like, I don't want to, please don't make me. I can't, I, you know, which is not the vibe. Now, that being said, I think they, they you know, it's a great stone set. And the audience is clapping. But you remember what was going on for the James Brown like five minutes ago. Um, and, you know, it's like everyone's screaming. It's teenage girl screaming. But then another sound starts to happen, which is just the roaring of the danger of rock and roll, which is what James Brown brings. Um, so Mick is, I mean, just, you know, he's feeling himself. I mean, Binder said that that his observation of what Mick was doing with his dancing was to you know, you got to fill up the space that, that is left by James Brown, which like pushed them into a new level. Now, I don't know if that's actually true, but you know, that it pushed them to another performance level, like, okay, it's fine. Otherwise we're just a cover band, which I think is what Bob Dylan called the stones. Wow. Ouch. Um, <laughs> I don't quote me on that. Um, but you know, are we a cover band like, are, or are we rock stars? 
Mm. And now we, we wow. know how it's done. You know, wow. it's like, that's what the Danny show is about. Everyone's drenched in sweat except Leslie Gore, who's like, I am the biggest <laughs> star in this room. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's fine. But everyone is working. It's a fascinating um, it almost feels like it was designed that way. Like someone is going to say, well, Chuck Berry won that round. Sorry, Jerry and the pacemakers, you know? Mm. Um, but it's good too, that there are women, um, on the bill. Um, it, you know, that they were included there is again, I think Bender is like forward thinking in a way of, um, and it's integrated too. Integrated. I mean, I the go-go dancers the as well as the civil rights act, right? 1964. Yeah. yeah. And the dancers too are um, diverse. It's not just, um, you know, it's, so, which is uh, like important. The audience too, I mean, it's mostly white, but there were, it was not just white yeah. audience. So um, I, it's a thrilling, I've seen it a mil, uh, you know, a million times. Um, it, when it was released on DVD, I think eight years ago or something like that, there's a commentary yeah. track. It's, it's, you know, um, and a very interesting background, which I didn't really get into, but, um, you know, it was put together by American International Pictures, which is what Roger Corman, you know, it's like teenage, what do teenagers want? They want double bills. They want horror. They want Edgar Allan Poe. They want like bikers. And what do they want? You know, like, because before it was like, what's the matter with kids today? Like, we're still going to have very, we're afraid. And But Elvis, the Beatles. All, little Richard broke that door down. We're not afraid anymore. We want to give them what they want. Mm. Um, and that was the Tammy show was part of that. It had a lot of um, influence, even though it um, was released. It's hard to find information about it. It was because it wasn't seen for so long, but um, it was the inspiration for many, many things that followed. Yeah. What I really loved about it, watching it is that so many of those acts are pre-icon phase yeah like as you were saying leslie gore is the biggest act there the yeah. most popular act and to see these incredible motown icons before they had released their biggest hits even james brown he hadn't released like some of his biggest pop hits um this was a big deal for these performers too that's the yeah. other thing is that it was um exposure it was you know it was released in a movie theater i think i mean it was like uh reaching it was groundbreaking this type of this type of uh, program on that on that level, and uh, you know, so you're going back to see Marvin Gaye with Terry Gar dancing around him, um, killing it, and uh, these legends um, at the beginning. The same with the Stones too. Definitely, it's a moment when rock and roll and pop music really is lifting off into another yeah um realm yeah they've surrendered to the teenagers okay we're no longer going to fight this it can't be fought um let's put everybody together and the ending is super awkward they all come on stage together and nobody knows what to do everyone's like standing and singing a song together and it's so awkward <laughs> and you see chuck berry just like laughing with like the go-go dancers in their fringe and um Leslie Gore like clapping along like what are we supposed to be doing <laughs> like it clearly was not rehearsed it's like great it's great it has this raw quality yeah well that uh I mean I guess a good good segue is to another kind of consummate performer 
yeah. Prince, who I became obsessed with around the same time that I became obsessed with Aretha Franklin. Um, so yeah, this is has been very nostalgic for me going into my childhood fandom. But it is kind of an opposite to The Tammy Show in that it's so hyper-choreographed. It's not really candid at all. And in fact, when I did a little bit of research, I did not know this at the t- first time that I had seen it, but most of it was reshot at Paisley Park and not um, as originally planned. Originally, they had gone, I think, to Rotterdam or some other European city, and it was supposed to capitalize on Prince's popularity in Europe. Um, And they had gathered all this footage, and apparently it wasn't usable or it wasn't up to Prince's standards. Um, So, of course, um, the control freak that he is, he had to restage the whole thing at Paisley Park. And I'm not clear from what I read how much of the audience shots are taken from Um, the European city footage or how much of it was restaged at Paisley Park. But still, I mean, it's incredible that he was able to summon that feeling of liveness, even if it was kind of a simulation. And I can't actually think of another concert film in which it feels like a single album is coming to life. Maybe, I mean, you can help me think if there are other examples, but this is Prince, arguably Prince's greatest album, my favorite Prince album, the most kaleidoscopic, eclectic of his works, and it is just coming alive before your eyes. The set, or the staging, even looks like the cover of the album, like lots of different layers and lights, and there's almost like a Manelli-esque um, bandwagon quality to the way it's being filmed. These incredible tracking shots, everything is choreographed to a T, very rhythmically cut. Um, it's incredible to see, and going back to the idea of concerts as this collective experience, you really see his band shine. Like the keyboardists are amazing. There's this one backup singer who's absolutely incredible. He's always had incredible backup singers. Um, I mean, the overhead shots of Sheila E. I mean, oh Sheila my God, e, Sheila she e is, e a is super such a superstar. Star. Oh my goodness, and, yeah, incredible, incredible. It gives me chills. And yeah, the generosity of Prince as a kind of ringleader of these incredible talents. And then of course at the center of it all is his just galvanizing genius um, for performance. Every single song is just breathtaking. He's doing splits everywhere. He's commanding the microphone and holding it in like the most incredible way. Um, Yeah, it's- I loved how uh, I just rewatched it. I saw it in the theater back in the day because um, Prince was like everything. I mean, it made me, I was very sad watching it. I mean, I was just, I can't still have a hard time believing that he is no longer with us. Yeah. But um, his uh, Bonnie, it's your house now when he like throw. Yes. Incredible. <sighs> yes. Like the greatest, like he's, he's telling his, backup singer who's going to do the solo Bonnie it's your house now and when he says about Sheila E uh, you do I'm pretty good for a girl he's commenting on the ridiculousness of that statement the best um, the you know superstars like Prince um, of course they're eccentric I mean Mm -hmm. you cannot live a normal life and be Prince 
but <laughs> the um uh I recently saw a performance too down at the IFC Center too. I was like, Mick Jagger, imagine acting like Mick Jagger in your life. How weird you people would be <laughs> anyway, that would be so weird. Um but these most of these people who are at that level are also the most generous. I yes. mean, that's the thing that people miss. I wouldn't say that about Aretha, weirdly. I, yeah. She was notoriously um, competitive and not super generous with who she deemed to be her rivals. But with Right, Prince, but she's singing with this chorus behind oh, her true. who yeah. are, I mean, w- when you're collaborating with someone. Yes, no, that's you know, true. When you are, um, yes, not, not with your rivals, yeah. um, but... You know, so Prince is on that stage and everyone gets their moment to shine and it doesn't take away from him. It is, um, it's part of why he was who he was and why Mm -hmm. he got these amazing people around him. This crew of just incredible when they all come down the stairs with the drums. It's so thrilling. It's so, it's ecstatic. Like the music is incredible. It's relentlessly paced. Like there's no banter in the middle because why would Prince talk when he could just <laughs> sing and play amazing guitar? Um, yeah, so in terms of big production, um, hyper-produced concert films, that would definitely be my favorite. But I was also thinking about doing, um, talking about Neil Young, Heart oh, of yeah. Gold, as an example of kind of the opposite, something that's very staged for camera, but is also way more stripped down, has a more intimate acoustic feel. Yeah, so I, even though the concert film is sort of thought of as this one thing or this one mode, it contains so many different Mm. um, flavors and styles. Yeah. Um, This might be strange, but I'm trying to, did you actually say the title? The Prince? I'm not sure you did. Oh, I, I don't think I did. Okay. Sign of the Times. <laughs> Sign of the Times. 1987. One of the greatest albums yes. of all time and one of the greatest concert films concert of all time. time. At, at, at a time with, with uh, I mean, I guess some some heavy competition. Stop Making Sense was the year after, I guess? Or Maybe. No? I'm not sure which came Yeah, first. I'm not sure. Definitely oh. late 80s, though. Yeah. No, I mean that's a movie where it's like it's an apotheosis of an era's look or style, you know. That but also most, having com- Purple yeah. Rain took over the world. It was like yeah. a thriller. I mean, I this I was you know alive and sentient at that point, and it was like oh, thriller took over a year. You know, it was a year of our lives. Um, and the same with Purple Rain. Was it literally a one single after another, after another, after another? Yeah. Um, plus the movie, it was like Prince is my world. Mm-hmm. And then a couple years later, there was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of, you know, and I, unfortunately, I never saw him live. I wish I had. But, yeah, that's my biggest live regret. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, so coming sort of after, like, how do you... How do you top? Do you top? Or is it something else entirely? Do you just do whatever you want to do? Which is obviously what he did. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do what I want to do. I've sort of... Mm. I'm going yeah. to, you know, remove language from my name. I'm going to do an entire album without any breaks. Yeah. You know? Mm. And this was the time... I haven't really thought this through, so it's kind of a... I'm thinking it through as I speak, but... MTV had just emerged in the 80s and the music video was kind of a new thing even though there are sort of proto music video forms but people were starting to get used to seeing 
very choreographed and highly edited versions of their favorite music stars on camera. Mm. And so this element of liveness, it's interesting to think about it as um, something that was maybe going out of style um, in terms of how you would be used to seeing a star on screen. So that's sort of an interesting, there's an interesting interplay in Sign of the Times between this idea of live performing and um, the extreme stylization and control that he's um, exercising over every shot Mm. and um, yeah, every moment of the film. Yeah, well, it's funny, you were just talking about the first half unplugged for a second, which, which, I mean, comes up, uh, I guess, a couple of years after that. Or yeah. so I don't know. I think we're in our memories. These are all getting kind of kind of skewed somehow. But uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the concert film as a form now, after so many years of having live music footage up on YouTube to go yeah. through. And what does it? Um, what does it mean? What's the experience of that? What makes it special from? Because to me, when I'm watching, say you know, just raw footage of Mariah Carey singing on Mm. YouTube. I don't need that necessarily to be a feature film. Um, But yeah, just... um, Well, there was um, one of my favorite films of whatever a couple years ago was the Justin Timberlake, Jonathan Demme's... Oh, yeah. uh, Incredible. ...which was, you know, captured... You know, like James Brown said to uh, Steve Bender, you captured my show. It sort of captured, I mean, and Demi was obviously amazing at sort of the essence of capturing an essence of a performer or an act. And Justin Timberlake's act is huge, but there's the intimacy on the stage with his band um, and him himself and his connection with an audience is what, And it captured that. I felt that it um, sort of captured the spectacle in an incredibly beautiful way, um, but also connected with the audience, which is the thing that sometimes is the missing piece Mm. in this. The Metallica 3D movie, as crazy as it was, I gave it like three and a half stars. I loved it (laughs) because it, 30 years into their career, they still have guys with their shirts off, losing their minds, um, g- pressing up against the barriers to get close to these. That's yeah. what, you know, and if you don't understand the appeal of Metallica or mm-hmm. whoever, Justin Timberlake, that's fine. But, you know, engage with, just see what the pure emotion, the pure emotion yeah. of that it. That they're and eliciting. I, yeah, yeah. 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 I think, I mean, that is the that's sort of at the heart of the concert film is fandom, Hmm. you know? Um, And definitely that's sort of the place from which I had written this Aretha Franklin piece. And that's Hmm. what I think all the great concert films do is capture uh, that crazy feeling that you get, that that, um, uncontainable um, spiritual feeling that you get Hmm. from a collective um, experience of, sublime music yeah there were a couple of shots in the audience in sign of the times and i only caught two of them where a couple spontaneously embraces (laughs) 
he brings that out. You want yeah, to cuddle. Definitely. I mean, cuddle, you know, euphemism. I mean, yeah. but you can <laughs> just love. see. Yeah. They they literally, it's like the spontaneous, like, ooh, honey, you know, yeah. or, or like, you, you know, just the girl. Feel flesh. You just yeah. want to feel um, flesh. And it's caught. I mean, it feels, yeah. you know, it's not staged. It's just happening in the sea of crowd. I was like, oh my mm. God, that is, you know, the fact that that was played at high school dances is, I mean, as dangerous as Elvis <laughs> at uh, high school. Da- I mean, it was like. Are you kidding me? And it all, <laughs> this all ties together because, you know, Prince, what it to me is the great, um, he's the heir to James Brown's throne. Mm. I mean, he idolized James Brown. Um, and really in James Brown's wake, how many other live performers can you count who brought that level of energy and mastery of the stage? Prince, and a, a, a man. A man. As like to, a man. Working yeah. at that vulnerability that yeah. it, there is a... Mm. Um, gap which we could it's a bigger conversation but yeah. you know men are not socialized to go at that as deep into it their emotions it still feels groundbreaking it's like yeah. unlike yeah. anything that you see today yeah. even yeah and to see you know to see prince um with his high heels jumping oh, off a platform <laughs> um and you know yeah. um chasing people back into the cage to do what he wants to do with them and then coming back and do this <laughs> guitar solo and um what yeah yeah, yeah. audacious i miss him yeah yeah he's i mean he often kind of felt like he was from some wonderful future that that we're eventually going to get to hopefully it always feels like an, let's let's just say it is an anticlimax what I'm going to talk about, so I apologize. It's a great choice, Nick. <laughs> but I was spellbound. But I, I can. Oh, so you watched too? Okay, great. Well, of I mean, of course. I yeah, that was a good thing. It's only 40, 50 minutes or so. Yeah, but um, I mean, I got kind of fascinated, you know, thinking about concert films and what performances and how it's getting to us or coming across to us. And so I guess sort of perversely, I, I had had recently watched this concert concert movie about Can. You know, and this is, you know, kind of a band that's really into the like trance-like groove <laughs> in a lot of things they're doing. So, which is a really kind of you know in, internalized or interiorized kind of thing. Often, it's a it's it's this kind of thing that you kind of nod to. Like yeah. there are long sequences in this, uh, you know, where the lead singer is is kind of just doing a slow headbang, you know, <laughs> yeah. and he has this flowing hair, and it's just this 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 like presence that's just sort of. <laughs> you know, pulsating in front of you. Um, so, I mean, I guess apparently, you know, I, I'm not an expert in the arcana of this particular, um, of this one, so I apologize. But uh, it's it was a free concert uh, that was given in, in, in Cologne in, in, in Germany. Um, and this movie is kind of a mix of that concert, studio sessions, and then these outtakes, or not outtakes, these cutaways that are of the band listening to themselves or of someone's son i guess there's a child involved with headphones on yeah a child yeah. i mean the whole thing actually opens with a child who has like these saucer eyes yeah. that immediately when they look at the camera you're just like you're like in, in headlights <laughs> and he, and he's sort of banging away at a drum or something and it's this very primal beginning to it that throws you off right 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 mm-hmm. away and i think the first song i think i told you this the first oh, yeah. song i <laughs> i went into a wormhole of time i i, I realized <laughs> 
It was literally like head banging, and he looks like the ring, the chick from the ring who comes out of the well, and he's wearing like a Piero, he's wearing like a jester's outfit, and everyone is, I mean, to start with that, with like a, I mean, it felt like it was 20 minutes long of just like, you know, this like. Well, I couldn't tell when one song ended yeah, and one that's began. True. Like, that's, that's true. That's yeah. how trance-like, trance-inducing right. it is. But it was a, a huge sound that sort of takes you over, which is, I imagine, the sort of point yeah i mean i mean what i love i love about it is just this sense of taking um you know something really earthy about a rock groove and and you know just putting everything into that so that it still rocks but it it, it rocks in this trance-like way mm -hmm. and for me it also feels really interesting doing that this is 1972 doing it at that point you know yeah, like yeah. i mean you know i mean you know, rock has 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 had its has some revolutions already by then, but they're already they've just gone really all in and inward with this particular thing for this performance. I know they do like other other things as well, um, but yeah, just it's it's a strange thing to see. And then speaking of like an audience, it's like you have a sort of a glimmering sense of them, um, and then there are these weird characters that emerge in the doctors. At one point, there's this guy you keep seeing who's like, did you see the guy who's like sunglasses and a suit, and he's like crouching on one of the amplifiers or something? Yeah, it was like a gargoyle. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a very. They're all gargoyles they're all to me. Gargoyles. I was like, they are like supernatural beings. Um, <laughs> Wait, what yeah. about the guy who's juggling something? Oh, the juggler. Oh my yeah. Gosh. I mean, that's also. Yeah, why a, not? I, yeah, why not? There's a guy who's juggling, and he's juggling. I mean, he ends up juggling differently colored umbrellas at one point, or parasols, and. Uh, yeah, just part of the show, but another, but it almost, it fits in because it's so rhythmic juggling yeah. and there's something you can't explain. I mean, like it's impressive, but at the same time, it's also hypnotic. Um, but also like, why is that guy there? So it's, it is like you're in a dream because like mm -hmm. this juggler has appeared and is there. Okay. That's just the way and it's going to be. I imagine that would be slightly challenging to even capture. Yeah. Um, but the photographers, this who were there, who were capturing it, yeah. you know, somehow it translated to me in my living room watching it on YouTube. Yeah. You know, I felt that buzz of yeah. um, the collective again and their energy, which was just there in another zone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're in the zone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's actually, that's, that's good to mention that like the camera, because that's how I came to this originally. I, I can't claim that, you know, I, I discovered this or something. It's basically because one of the um, cinematographers was Robbie Mueller. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he was there, I think, because uh, the editor was one of the vendor's editors. Um, so he's one of the people who shot it. And, you know, it's always hard to say you're seeing someone's signature in it, especially in like a collective endeavor like this. Um, but there, I mean, there are definitely a couple shots where I'm wondering, like there are these studio close-ups, uh, which have this kind of red blue color scheme that kind of reminded me of some things that, that Robin Muller would do in the eighties. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's sometimes a kind of like messy looking kind of shaggy <laughs> endeavor generally, you know, uh, you know, it's a lot of long shots of, of, of them just kind of, you know, drumming far, back. far back, far yeah. back. Yeah. Um, so it's good that they kind of mix in these, these kind of close ups where, where they're going, going in, inside. Um, and yeah, I mean, it makes good use of like the sense of the crowd, the sense of darkness that everyone's somehow sharing in a good way. Um, especially toward, toward the end of it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Well, when you Google it, you can 
see people's it's a, another one of those legendary oh, right. yeah, um yeah. hard to see you know it's a, you know but people through the yeah. grapevine know about it so yeah yeah i think all of our films and really all great concert films bring to light sort of the the difference between being there at the event experiencing it surrounded by the atmosphere of the live music and the experience of seeing it on a flat screen, sort of this interplay between the immersion in the event and the distance that cinema provides. I was definitely thinking about that as I was watching Amazing Grace that, um, you know, when you're, what would it have been like to be there in person? Would it necessarily have been a more trans transporting experience, you know, like the fact that cinema can get up close in that way and get all these different angles. Um, yeah. And shooting from behind her. So you exactly. see um, the Tammy show does that too. Yeah. So you see this, you know, massive screaming faces behind Mick Jagger and it's thrilling. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know if that was done i mean they were making it up as they went yeah but um aretha had the same thing that's where you see mick jagger sort of dancing around in the back yeah um so that definitely helps you feel yeah yeah like you're there but you're also her yeah yeah like what she's seeing yeah Yeah. because i mean it's kind of a truism that that's what's integral to the magic of performance right live performances that you can't actually um, there's no substitute for being there. But in some ways, the great concert films give you something that you could never have gotten being there. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's a magic where it's like you, like an angel, you were given <laughs> this kind of privilege to go back in time and be there and be in different parts of it and, and experience it in different ways. Um, well, I can't really improve on Andrew's ending there, so um, I think we can wrap up. But thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. <laughs>